Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Found out that I was also really addicted to fear. And fear, you know, people call people like me an adrenaline addict, but beneath the adrenaline, you'll find fear. There's first fear, then the adrenaline. Uh -huh. And I was as addicted to fear as a heroin addict is addicted to heroin. I was uh, obsessed with doing scary experiences as evidenced by my trip to Asia right before my ski career began. But I was also repressing fear to the extreme. And there are a lot of teachers out there that teach what you want to do about fear is you want to conquer it, you want to overcome it, rationalize it away, positive affirmations, control it, ignore it, that kind of thing. And I was doing that since a very young age, and I was exceptional at it, so much so that I didn't feel fear because there's a payoff for that, but there's a cost. And you can get away with that kind of thing for about 10 years, and then just things start to go south, and your life comes unraveled. For me, the PTSD, the burnout, the injuries, all of that. And so I, I started just dissecting um, my relationship with fear. I had both a love and a hate relationship with fear. It's a bit of a paradox. But when you make your life all about one thing, like anybody that's married can say, well, I can love and hate my wife at the same time. So I <laughs> loved fear so much, but I also repressed it to the extreme in order to ski the way I wanted to. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Kristen, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. So glad to be here. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. Uh, you were actually put on my radar by way of one of our listeners who recommended your book. And uh, given that I am an avid snowboarder now and the fact that you were, you know, uh, the world's best female extreme skier, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I definitely want to talk to her about fear and all sorts of things. But before we get into that, I'm going to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and the work that you've ended up doing? Oh my gosh, that is an interesting question. Well, um, I <laughs> I was from a really small town in New Hampshire, 2,000 people. My graduating class had, I believe, 19 kids. Wow. Um, and I also graduated a year early. Anyway, I, there was a local college of about 1,000 students, and I actually hung out with college students. You know, I went to, I started college when I was 14. I took college classes. Um, and so I was hanging out with all of them. And, and I actually became one of the cool kids at college. Like if you wanted to be in the in crowd, you're supposed to get to know the head of this uh, uh, fraternity and you're supposed to get to know this high school girl, Kristen. Like, like I was definitely the it girl. It was, it was very uh, profound, a big ego trip for a teenage girl in a small town to be a hot thing in and it wasn't a, a physical thing like I wasn't mm -hmm. slutty or anything <laughs> like the girl to get to know if you want to be hip I guess oh, yeah. and how that influenced me is I don't know I kind of got uh, 
to fame. That sounds just kind of stupid just to say it now, but I liked it. And then a lot of my life, certainly as an athlete, was pursuing an ongoing desire for fame. Uh Um, I'm curious what you learned about human relationships by being in an environment where the social groups are that small. Um, Like, how is that different than being, say, in a big town with that kind of social group? Oh, boy. Um, I would say that, you know, I live in Salt Lake City and all my friends live in New York City, San Francisco, L.A. Like, these are my people, my people, but I don't live in those big towns. I think that Salt Lake City is the biggest town that I'd ever want to live in. And I think that that has influenced where I choose to live, certainly. And uh, I also really crave real, honest, down-to-earth friendships. Like, I I grow so bored with small talk. Um, I was at an event the other day, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't take it anymore. I was there for three days, and I, I finally just had to have an intimate, deep conversation with somebody. So I met this guy who had just gotten married and he was having a baby. I'm like, okay, why are you having a baby? Um, why did you get married? Like I just started asking him all these really deeply personal questions. Um, uh, like, are you guys having a monogamous marriage? Did you negotiate that? Or did you, uh, was it implied? Like, I just like to ask people honest, real questions and get down kind of to the nitty gritty of what really makes them them. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that that had an impact on me as uh, from being from a small town as well and how I interact with people at parties. I can relate as an interviewer. Um, you know, I'm curious, uh, did you grow up like just born, like were you one of those kids that like I see on the mountain flying by me when they're three years old? No, I only took up skiing because uh, the school let us out of school on Wednesdays early if you took ski lessons. And my parents, you know, they were, I guess they would be called free range parents. Like they didn't pay attention to me at all. I could do anything I want. I could pull all nighters at age 14 and they wouldn't even bat an eye about it. Um, so I, they certainly weren't going to take me skiing. And um, I just got into it for that reason. And frankly, you're going to, this is going to blow your mind. I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old. <laughs> wow, you must not fall very much. Yeah, and my pair of skis that I had for probably age 14 through 18 was a pair of skis I found in the dumpster. Wow. Um, and I went from a 140 to a 190 just because these skis I found in the dumpster were 190s. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to ski 50 centimeters longer. And so I skied in jeans until I was 20. And then by age 23, I made it on the U.S. ski team for moguls. And I was being called the best big mountain woman extreme skier in the world. Two completely different sports. So I became world class at two completely different sports in three years from uh, buying my first pair of ski pants. And by the way, I never had any any training, never had any coaching. I was competing against girls that went to the best high school ski academies, went to summer camps, and uh, I kicked their butts uh, without any uh, training, except for a couple lessons that I took in second grade, and that was it. Okay, I, I have to ask how that actually happens because, you know, I mean, I, I've had the chance to interview a lot of sort of world-class performers at their craft, you know, whether they be artists, whether they be athletes. Um, and for the most part, it seems like this is something, and especially when you see what you see in the media, it's like, oh, you know, LeBron James has been playing basketball since he was like, you know, eight years old on a team that basically started off as this junior high team and eventually became the high school team that he was on that like just crushed people left and right. Um, and I'm curious one without coaching um without necessarily having parents who put you on skis at the age of two 
how do you make that kind of progress um, as an athlete? Like, what is involved in that that enables that level of achievement? And how can that be applied to other areas of our lives? Here's what happened, and this is a great segue into fear, because I'm a fear specialist. When I was 22, I took last place in regional mogul competitions, and I mean dead last. And I was just trying to hang out with friends and, and go on trips together. Like I had no aspirations to get on the U.S. ski team. Big Mountain Extreme Skiing wasn't even on my radar. And I decided that I was going to go uh, to Asia for the summer. So all these girls are going to these high school, excuse me, to these uh, summer camps, you know, training on glaciers. And I go to Asia for the summer. And the thing is, I really had low self-esteem. And I realized that the only reason why I felt good about myself was because I was a pretty girl. I knew how to get a lot of attention because remember, I told you the story about the college and I could ski well. And I realized that I'm not always going to be pretty. I'm not always going to ski well. I've got to work on my self-esteem at its core. So I had two rules for this trip to Asia. I went by myself. I went for four months. The first rule was that I was going to make myself as ugly as possible. So I got rid of my contact lenses, wore really frumpy clothes, never took showers. (laughs) And the second rule was that I was not going to talk about skiing the whole time. I wasn't going to think about skiing, talk about skiing. And I was, uh, you know, like I didn't pretend to be something that I wasn't, but I just wanted to see who I was without the prettiness and the skiing. Mm. And so four months, and while I was there, I like slept in the bushes. I volunteered for Mother Teresa's house for the destitute and dying. I went to Bangladesh just to witness um, human suffering. I almost lost my leg to gangrene. Like I basically took a lot of risks. Um, I got robbed at gunpoint in the Philippines and and had to leave the country at gunpoint. And like, I loved having all these crazy experiences, just totally life changing, terrifying experiences. But I just really went on kind of a fear tour of Asia. And I came back four months later, I hadn't even thought about skiing the whole summer. And the first contest happened and I won. And then I won everything that year. And next thing you know, I got invited to try out for the U.S. ski team. And then how you get on the U.S. ski team, you go to this thing called nationals and you have to ski better than a girl that's already currently on the U.S. ski team, which I did. So within uh, three months of getting, well, four months, I guess, from getting back from Asia, all of a sudden I'm on the U.S. ski team for moguls. I'm like, whoa, like this wasn't even a goal of mine, right? And that same year, I jumped off my first cliff for my first camera and was called the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. So I became world class, like I said, in two sports, not just three years from buying my first pair of ski pants, but the day, you know, the the season that I got home from this tour in Asia where all I did was work on my self-esteem and have as many scary experiences as possible. Because if you have a lot of scary experiences and you put yourself out there, you take yourself out of your comfort zone, it just builds your confidence so much. Uh-huh. And uh, so the my technique in skiing didn't matter, but my confidence did. So I am absolutely the poster child for it's all mental. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, was there a point at which you like fell in love with skiing and and thought that this was going to be your career? Because you said like a lot of these things weren't even goals. There was a point when I was 15 years old, all of a sudden I became obsessed with skiing and I wound up uh, skipping school every lunch break. I I lied and said, oh, I'm at a college class. And um, two months before 
so then I skipped school every lunch break for the next two or three years. And then when I was about to graduate at age 17, two months before I was going to graduate, the principal found out about all this and I got suspended. <laughs> uh, uh, no, excuse me. They, they suspended me for a week. And then they gave me 60 days of, uh, what is it, when you have to stay after school? A detention. Detention. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I had a job, so I couldn't show up for detention. So I blew off detention. So there's this big thing. And I was a straight-A student. There's this big thing. They weren't going to let me graduate because I hadn't gone to any of my detentions. And then they, I think they just wanted to get rid of me, so they let me graduate. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So at 15 to 17, I just became obsessed with skiing. There was a little ski area in my hometown. I went every lunch break. I I could not get enough. What what leads to that? Just out of curiosity, like I, I personally have experienced that with surfing. The first time I stood up on a wave, like that moment of flow was like, holy shit, I want to feel this all the time. Like it, it became an obsessive drive. Um early on. And I, I, in some ways, I'm kind of glad I didn't discover it till I was in my 30s, because I feel like literally, I probably would have never gone to class at business school school because I went to school in Malibu. Um, I, I would have probably made very different choices, even in terms of where I went to college, <laughs> if I had been a surfer when I was a teenager. I really believe now, having reflected on the last 30 years in working as a, either a professional skier or a mindset sports coach and more that um, as much as I love the skiing, actually what I really loved was the place that it took me emotionally, mentally, um, those higher states that flow. Uh, I consider flow in the zone, different things, but um, it, it's just that also radical self-expression. Mm-hmm. Like you just find something, if you get lucky enough to find something that you're really good at. Like I always joke that the best skier in the world is sitting around a dung fire in Africa right now and he's never going to see snow in his lifetime. Like there's a missed opportunity. Like he has all the other, like the right body type, the right mentality. But, you know, thank God somebody handed me a pair of skis when I was young because I definitely found the thing, the catalyst that was going to take me into that place. You know, I was uh, innately born with some sort of gift for this, the right body type, all of that. And all the stars aligned. And all of a sudden, I started just feeling incredible when I was skiing, Um, not just as an ego trip, but something beyond that. And so then I just wind up chasing that like a Labrador chases a ball, you know, just very obsessively and focused. Yeah. So walk me through how you get from there to like, what planted the seed to explore this idea of fear? Because I remember just reading the book and thinking about the jumps and I was like, holy shit, uh, that doesn't sound like somebody who's dealing with fear. So I'm really curious, like what planted the seed to explore this idea in so much detail? One thing about my ski career is it seemed like the media was more obsessed with my ability to be fearless than they were even about my skiing itself. And so every article called me fearless and talked about that and asked me questions about that. And I definitely didn't feel fear during my ski career, almost to a fault, actually not almost to a fault. I'm lucky to be alive. I would have done anything. And, uh, and I, I believe my own hype is what I'm trying to say. And what happened is after about 10 years, all of a sudden, just things started to go south. I'd seen a lot of my friends die in the mountains. I'd had a lot of near-death experiences, and I had PTSD. The other thing that happened is I was burnt out. Um, I actually started to hate skiing, and hate is a really strong word, and it's not inappropriately used here. Um, I dreaded winter. 
which was bizarre. And I also had a lot of injuries, injuries that wouldn't heal. And, you know, if you're going to be a professional skier, of course, you're going to have a lot of injuries. It's par for course. But I, I felt that it was bizarre that I was having these injuries because like I had a knee surgery that wouldn't heal. I had to have four operations for one injury. And it didn't make any sense because I was in the best shape of my life. I was super focused. I was um, really strong. And I got to the point where I just felt like my undercurrent was just seriously off. There was something seriously wrong and I couldn't take it anymore and I quit. And I, I mean, I had four different columns and four different ski magazines around the world. I had my own television show. I was fully sponsored. I didn't even have to ski anymore. All I had to do was show up at the parties and drink a can of Red Bull and I'd get paid, right? <laughs> at this point. So I'm like, I, ha- I, I can't take it anymore. I've got to get out of this. I ripped the Band-Aid off. My friends and family, my boyfriend, were all just freaking out. And it happened because I went to Burning Man. I went to Burning Man and I came home and I'm like, I'm, I can't take it anymore. I'm tired of living an inauthentic life. And that really was what the feeling was. I felt inauthentic. Something was wrong. And uh, what happened is I then went on a journey to try to figure out what had gone wrong. So I started these camps and I met the Zen master and uh, very quickly I learned what had gone wrong. It turns out that I wasn't fearless, that fear was with me every single moment of my ski career. It was if once I was willing to look underneath my relative reality, I could see that it was there. First of all, I was incredibly um motivated by fear of being invisible, fear of not being loved. And I'll tell you what, you jump off a 70-foot cliff, throw a big flip, you're no longer invisible. People really love you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I found out that my PTSD was from, well, actually, let me back up. I found out that I was also really addicted to fear. And fear, you know, People call people like me an adrenaline addict, but beneath the adrenaline, you'll find fear. There's first fear, then the adrenaline. Uh And I was as addicted to fear as a heroin addict is addicted to heroin. I was uh, obsessed with doing scary experiences as evidenced by my trip to Asia right before my ski career began. But I was also repressing fear to the extreme. And there are a lot of teachers out there that teach what you want to do about Fear is you want to conquer it, you want to overcome it, rationalize it away, positive affirmations, control it, ignore it, that kind of thing. And I was doing that since a very young age, and I was exceptional at it, so much so that I didn't feel fear because there's a payoff for that, but there's a cost. And you can get away with that kind of thing for about 10 years, and then just things start to go south, and your life comes unraveled. For me, the PTSD, the burnout, the injuries, all of that. And so I I started just dissecting um, my relationship with fear. I had both a love and a hate relationship with fear. It's a bit of a paradox. But when you make your life all about one thing, like anybody that's married can say, well, I can love and hate my wife at the same time. So I (laughs) love fear so much, but I also repressed it to the extreme in order to ski the way I wanted to. And so as I started to heal my relationship with fear, then these issues started resolving. Like PTSD is Uh when you go through a really traumatic devastating experience emotionally and then if you don't know how to deal with the emotions you push them down and those undealt with emotions are now kind of recirculating in your system over and over again until you deal with them that's just they're going to torture your life you know come back in an irrational crazy way so once I started making friends with fear and stopped the repressive conquering overcoming of it 
that started to ease up. And then my burnout. Burnout is, you know, I declared war against fear. The war was being carried out in my unconscious mind. And anybody that is at war with fear, they're at war with themselves. And it's an unwinnable war. You may win a few battles, but you're not going to win the war. And any country that's at war after 10 years, like all the resources are depleted, everybody's exhausted. So that's the reason for my burnout. And then the reason for my injuries is I had to become a really rigid, stoic, kind of masculine, arrogant person in order to to not deal with my fear. And what do we know about rigid trees in a heavy wind? They break. So I started repairing my relationship with fear. I just studied with a Zen master intently for 15 years, became a mindset sports coach. And I started noticing that all of the athletes that I was working with, without exception, if they came to me because they were underperforming, it was because they had some sort of repressive attitude towards fear. And I'd help them end that war and then um, they would start performing better. And then I had people Uh, past skiing and sports training come to me for depression, real world problems, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, insomnia, and on and on. And I found that if I helped them have a more honest, healthy relationship with their fear, then their problems eased up or completely disappeared altogether. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I declared myself a fear specialist and, uh, Harper Collins offered me a book contract without having to write a book proposal, which I understand is very unusual. Yeah, it is. And I think the reason why they did that is because what I teach about fear is so different and uh-huh. is actually the radical opposite of what else is out there that it's just fresh, it's new. It's, it's very rare for somebody to come up with new ideas, especially about something as old and established as fear and how to deal with fear. Uh-huh. And then I wrote the book and you know came out this summer and yada, yada, here I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> okay, so many questions uh, based on that. So I, I was really fortunate to have read the whole book and I want to talk about this sort of through the framework that you offer and we'll tie in some of the things that you've talked about and come back to them as well. I want to talk about how fear works cycle Logically and biologically. And I think that the concept that I absolutely loved, um, you know, you gave this framework of the 10,000 employees. And I was wondering if you could explain what that means, go into the thinking mind, the controller, um, and then we can talk more about repression as well. But let's start with the 10,000 employees, the thinking mind and the controller. I see all of us as a corporation, like my corporation has a name, it's Kristen. And what really makes up who I am are these 10,000, and that's the traditional number in Zen, these 10,000 employees all running around in my unconscious mind, creating this product, which is me called Kristen. And when people hire me to work with them, I'm like a business consultant that's being brought in to help this corporation run better. And I, what I'll do is I'll interview key employees in your corporation and just see where our stuck places are. And the first employee that I always interview, especially if somebody's stuck regarding fear, is the controller because we tend to want to try and control fear. Now, there's so many different ways to deal with fear. Some people ignore fear. Some people avoid fear, like they don't do scary things. Some people control it. Some people use their rational analytical mind to think about fear and try to understand it and ultimately rationalize it away. In fact, in our society, emotional intelligence is seen as our ability to understand our emotions and control them. And so I talk a lot about in the book 
how we've kind of put the controller, which is one employee, and we put the thinking mind or the one who's trying to understand, which is slightly different, in charge of dealing with our emotions. And when I talk to the controller and I ask it questions, you know, the controller is exhausted and it's trying to control, you know, everything external, other people, the sun, the moon, the stars, it's trying to control everything internal. And there's this whole new age movement suggesting that, oh, you just control your thoughts, Mm. you know, control your emotions, control your self-esteem, control your body. It's like control everything and then you'll be the person you want to be. And it's a lot of pressure to be put on one employee. And that employee will burn out, become exhausted. And so when I talk to the controller, kind of the end result is we want to be able to control the things that we can control and then not waste our time trying to control the things that we can't control Mm -hmm. and have the wisdom to know the difference. You know the poem. Yeah. And like, for example, trying to control thoughts, uh, like say negative thoughts or even fearful thoughts. We have 50 thoughts supposedly studied by science per minute. So time 50 times 60 times 24 times – I mean, you do the math. That's a lot of thoughts in a given week, much yeah. less a year. And how much do we actually successfully succeed at controlling an individual thought? Maybe one, maybe one a week uh-huh. if we're lucky. Like, it just seems like it's a lot of work, right? And then you control emotions or you try to understand or cognitively – understand our emotions. We go to a therapist, we talk and think endlessly about our fear, about our anger, about our sadness. You know, it it's actually preventing us from feeling our emotions. So right now, at this point, we're dealing with our emotions intellectually. Uh-huh. When we really should be dealing with our emotions emotionally. Yeah. And uh, so basically what I do with this dialogue, this shift the game of 10,000 wisdoms, which is the teaching tool that I use to help people get unstuck very quickly from unconscious patterns that don't work for them anymore is I start with the controller and the thinking mind and kind of get them off the job of dealing with fear because it's not going to help. It's not going to work. You're just going to be spinning your wheels. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mm, wow. Um, I'm curious. So after something like, uh, you know, life-threatening injury or near-death experience, um, how do you come back from that and, and manage fear in that situation? Like, I, I, and the reason I'm asking this is, so <clears throat> funny story, um, I started snowboarding two years ago. And I think sometime a couple of years ago, I went before that. But I remember being at Arapahoe Basin or, or some ski resort, looking at the top of the mountain, seeing the top of the Black Diamond and telling my friend, I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm ever going up there. Those people look like ants from up here, from down here. So that is never going to happen. Um, and then this year I did my first Black Diamond. Uh, and when I got to the bottom, I was like, oh my God, I want more of that. Uh, so I, I'm curious, you know, when you have something as crazy as a near-death experience, which is probably nowhere near what I'm experiencing, how do you come back from that, you know, with this relationship with fear? And um, how do you deal with fear, like, in situations, like, when I get to a black diamond, I'm always like, fuck, this is going to be way steeper than anything I've ever done. Um, it's going to hurt if I fall and I go too fast. Like, I know myself well enough to know there are sections on the mountain where I'll heel side it on purpose, because I know if I do that, I won't go too fast. Let's first address you and okay. your desire to ski black diamonds or snowboard black diamonds. Like picture a circle. This is your comfort zone. And every time you go out of the circle, imagine that you put a dot outside and you go out of your comfort zone, you're going to feel fear. You put a dot outside this circle and then after a while you connect the new dots and now you have a bigger circle. That's your new comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So what this illustrates is that there's actually no expansion of who you are unless you're willing to feel fear. Mm-hmm. Or unless you do something scary. Like there is no learning and growing without fear. Right. And it's definitely obvious with skiing and snowboarding because it's a dangerous sport. You go faster, you ski steeper stuff. Like it's scary. People come to me all the time. They're like, oh, I want to feel less fear when I ski. I'm like, well, why would you want to do that? The whole reason why we go skiing is to feel fear. Uh Um, Like people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to feel fear and, and have that experience. And it actually, fear is like, uh, the thing that actually takes you into the zone, but we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Okay. So, um, like if there was no th- fear, then people wouldn't buy lift tickets. Like the industry <laughs> right. would die <laughs> in an instant, right? We get that wrong. We don't do it despite the fear. We do it because of the fear. So yeah. first of all, just know that that's what's going on with you. You have a willingness to feel fear. Okay. Now, 
on to when you have like a near-death experience or maybe you get mugged at gunpoint or um, you break a leg or you witness something really horrific, you know, that's not fear that you choose, mm-hmm. right? That's not you consciously choosing to step out of your comfort zone. That's just something that happens to you. And uh, then it's a little bit harder to have that kind of intimate connection with fear and, and uh, what do you do with with those kinds of situations is we tend to just not deal with our fear. Like we go numb. We hear people all the time after a tragedy, they just feel numb. Um, they check out. They go on a drinking binge. They just don't want to have to deal with their fear. And so then we push it down into the basement. You know, maybe we try to breathe it away. We try to let it go. Like we try to do all these coping mechanisms. We do everything we possibly can except for fear our emotions, you know, squelch them, ignore them, avoid them, um, control them. And then that undealt with fear just gets locked in your basement and it starts recirculating round and round, um, hijacking your mind, hijacking your life, um, running its unfulfilled agenda, sometimes even for the rest of your life. And so long as you continue to not deal with that emotional state, it could be fear, anger, sadness, then it's just going to run your life. Like when you avoid anything, you give it magical powers. But if you turn towards the fear instead in an honest way and start to have a healthy, considerate relationship with your emotions, then the PTSD goes away. Um, It worked for me. I've seen it work for a lot of other people. Um, One of the next online courses I'm going to create actually is for PTSD because there's so many people that are struggling with PTSD and they just can't get past it. And, you know, no wonder why in our society, we just rush to gratitude and forgiveness. And like, we are even living in a society where somebody's kid will get murdered. And then the next day, the parents are saying, oh, well, we forgive the murderer. You know, like, come on. Like, it, it looks beautiful. It, it's well-intended. It's But you got to go through the unpleasant experience of your fear, your anger, your sadness, your frustration, your deep, deep hurt and pain before you can get to that. Like, we're skipping a step. Mm-hmm. And so, we, we are just taught to kind of control our emotions. And we're even at the point where I went to a funeral this woman, her husband died suddenly, unexpectedly. She's now a widow. And she was just stoic at the funeral. And people said, oh, my gosh, she handled that really well. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, we're just so stoic around our emotions. And uh, so no wonder we have such horrible PTSD. And the last thing I'll say, just kind of taking it to big picture, you know, the people that we know most to have PTSD problems are our military. Mm-hmm. And the image of the soldier standing there with a drill sergeant just screaming at him during boot camp is hard to shake. You know, they're explicitly taught to repress their emotions in the military. And so when they go through what, of course, is going to be a horrific experience, especially if they're going to a war uh, zone, you know, they come home, they don't know how to deal with their emotions. Mm-hmm. And so they, they just have such horrible PTSD. And, you know, there's, of course, if we teach them anything else, it might be dangerous. You got to repress, repress, repress. Um, But I say that there's another possibility. I don't think the military is interested in hearing about it, but at least I can work with people who have gone through some sort of horrific, emotional, devastating experience. um, And it's still kind of recirculating in their lives and um, show them what to do instead. Mm. Yeah. I I have two other questions about this. Um, How do you find the line uh, between risk and recklessness? 
And after seeing friends died and with age, has your capacity for risk on the mountain changed? Uh, because I remember that my first thought of I'm never going to do black diamonds was I'm 39 years old. The last thing I want is to break a bone because that means I'll be out for good, not for like a season. Um, that was my first thought is that would be the reason. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, where that line is and how you find it and how it's changed with age and how has watching friends die changed your perspective on it? I was extremely reckless during my ski career. Um, most people that filmed me said that she's lucky to be alive. I was actually voted one of the top 10 skiers in the world most likely to die by skiing. So I know reckless. And reckless comes when you're in denial of fear, when you ignore fear. But if you have what I call a fear practice, if you have a healthy relationship with your fear, you know, there's the fear of, let's say you want to jump off a 20-foot cliff. There's the fear of jumping off the 20-foot cliff. And uh, let's say it's a level 5 out of 10, 10 being high. And then you have a fear of being the type of person that wouldn't jump off the 20-foot cliff, you know, and that's a level 10. Whatever the bigger fear is wins. And especially if you have the skill set, um, like you wouldn't jump off a 20-foot cliff if you've never snowboarded before, right? Yeah. So this is for somebody that just has an honest relationship with their emotions. You know, there's fear if you do it and there's fear if you don't do it. Just fear, fear everywhere. You know, fear is with us every single moment of every single day in every interaction we have. And if we have an honest relationship with our fear and if we can listen to it, then we're actually tapping into intuition and instinct and you'll just know organically, uh, like, okay, this is a good idea, right. or this is not a good idea. Sure. You know, and you don't, you know, you don't want to walk away from the cliff and then feel like a douchebag because you have the skills <laughs> to do it. The conditions are perfect. Your girlfriend was there. Like, like, you know, there's you got to kind of put all that into the to the mist, uh -huh. uh, the mix. So, anyway, that's how you. Like if you have a kid, for example, that just seems super reckless, uh, I can almost guarantee that they're in denial of their fear and they're just doing stupid stuff. And I definitely recommend that they start a fear practice immediately and just kind of tap into a more intuitive version of that versus just a repressive, repressive version, um, especially if you want to survive your 20s. Yeah. So I want to come <laughs> back to the, the fear practice. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so there's one other question I have about this. And so I you know, I started skiing black diamonds pretty much the entire week that I was skiing on a last trip. And one of the things that struck me was, you know, first, first time I made it down, uh, you know, black without, you know, uh, any problems, I was like shitting and grin on my face. And of course that increased my confidence. And with my confidence increased, I basically downloaded an app. I was like, all right, now I really want to push it. And of course, you know, going 30, 31 miles an hour, which is probably slow for somebody like you. I remember eating it really hard and thinking, all right, I, I think I got to slow it down. And, and I'm curious, how do you how do you deal with fear in situations where something like that happens and bounce back from it? And this can be a great example, too, in business. Like you launched the business and it was a colossal failure or you asked the girl to marry you and she said no. Right. Yeah. Like how do you recover from some devastating um, emotional experience? And we've kind of touched upon this a little bit. And I, I can tell you how 
I mean, how I dealt with it before versus how I deal with it now are very different. How most people deal with those kinds of things is they become gun shy, like they become afraid to take a risk. They become fear avoiders or um, that's probably the most common. Um, What I do now is, and of course, I'm getting older and I definitely am not in the same kind of mood for fear like I once was. I'm not as I'm not addicted to it anymore. Um, what I would do now is I would heed the message of my fear and I would kind of back off a bit and and just kind of really tone it down. And there's kind of a magical number actually I've come up with and I, I think I might have heard it from someone, but I think four percent out of your comfort zone is the optimal Uh, amount of risk to take to achieve flow states Mm. where fear can actually take you into a higher state of consciousness. But if it's 5% out of your comfort zone, (laughs) then all of a sudden you're like explosion and, um, you know, catastrophic failure, right? And you're gripped and you're, you know, like your first speech should not be in front of 2000 people and last 90 minutes. You know, your first speech should be at Toastmasters. (laughs) So you only want to go out of, you know, your comfort zone just a little bit in increments. And so if you have a crash, you know, there's also the rational mind like, okay, yes, I, I, um, I hit a, a mogul that I didn't know was there. Like, it wasn't just because I didn't have the ability to yeah. handle this. Um, so you got to factor that in too. But I would just recommend just honoring your fear, backing off, being willing to feel it. Tell your friends, like, I'm afraid to go any faster. And if they say, oh, you know, don't be a blockhead, like, just tell <laughs> them to stuff it and say, like, my fear is here for a reason. It's here to keep me safe. Yeah. And then when you're ready to start again, because you have a healthy relationship with your fear, you haven't repressed it, you don't have PTSD, then you just go in increments, 4%. Okay, I'm going to try it again. Yeah. Like, all right, that worked. All right, I'm going to try it again. That worked. Yeah, I think Stephen Kotler calls that the midpoint between boredom and anxiety. He is like, <laughs> just challenging enough to like, you know, make you feel free, but not so challenging that it paralyzes you. And somebody asked me once, why 4%? I'm like, because 4% is more than 3 and it's less than 5. <laughs> it's just a number. But just, just just put your little toe outside your comfort zone and then work up to it. Wow. So I, I want to uh, finish by talking about uh, this idea of what you call a fear practice and, and what it means, how you define it, and most importantly, how people implement it in their lives. A fear practice is this. You know how I said that emotional intelligence in our society is touted as our ability to understand our emotions and control them. You know, there's a lot of variations of that. People say, well, you don't want to repress them and you have to accept them and they're normal and natural and all that. But people, they just kind of can't help in the end. Okay, now breathe them out, get rid of them, control, conquer them, you know, and we're back to the same old shit, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, what a fear practice is, is, and this is how I see emotional intelligence, is our ability to feel our emotions in an honest way and have them help us come alive and be more creative versions of ourselves. Mm. So that's to me what emotional intelligence is. And what a fear practice is, like right now in America, we have a gratitude practice, mm-hmm. forgiveness practice, love, joy. Like people always say, oh, choose love over fear. It's like, oh, it just makes me cringe um, because we just want to rush to the positive. Uh-huh. And so having a fear practice is where you're willing to look at your dark shadow, where you're willing to 
feel your unpleasant feelings. Fear is a sensation of discomfort in your body. If it's in your mind, that's because you're repressing it. It's hijacking your mind to run its unfulfilled agenda, you know, in a loop. Um, so fear is a sensation of discomfort in your body. So for me, a fear practice is not thinking about your emotions, not dealing with them intellectually, but actually feeling them. Uh-huh. So we can do it right now. Just okay. close your eyes right now. All right. And just acknowledge that it's normal and natural to feel fear. That uh, Fear is not a sign of personal weakness. It's not a character flaw. It's just a sign that you're human. And then the next step could be just locate the sensation of discomfort in your body. It could feel like fear, but it could feel like a million other things. You know, beneath anger is fear. Oftentimes, we'd rather not feel fear. You know, it doesn't feel powerful enough. So we feel anger instead. 95% of actually what we know is modern anger is undealt with fear in the basement. Um, Sadness. The lines get really blurred when you repress an emotion. They all, like depression, for example, when the emotions uh, get repressed, actually, uh, depression is Latin for um, uh, press down. So when you press down your emotions, they become depressed, and so too do you. So if you feel some sort of innate sadness or even depression, like that's fear. If you feel jealousy, unworthiness, powerlessness, beneath these are all fear. So it could show up, that discomfort could show up in a million different ways, and fear has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. So locate what it is that you feel, and then locate where it is that you feel it. Like right now, I feel... um, anxiety that my computer is going to crap out because I'm running out of juice. And um, I feel it in my gut and I feel it in my chest. What do you feel? Um, I'm a little anxious about that, but uh, (laughs) that very thing as well. But same thing. Usually when I'm thinking about fear, it's in my gut. All right. And notice you just said the magic words. You said you're thinking about fear. Right. Because where we're headed is we're going to get you to start feeling your fear. Okay. And if people meditate, this would could be a great new meditation. Uh-huh. And then on a scale of 1 to 10, just notice how strong is it. Um, for me, it's a level 4. Mm. How about you? About 4 or 5 right now. All right. Third step. Now notice your relationship with that emotion. See, fear is not a problem in our lives. It's the way that we're dealing with fear that is the problem. Like fear is supposed to inspire fight or flight. But at this point, you know, like let's say we're skiing something super steep and all of a sudden somebody freezes. Um, You know, what is that? Well, what happens is the fear shows up and the fear is the new issue. Like the steepness of the slope is long forgotten. We're now fighting or fleeing the fear itself. You know, we don't want to deal with the fear or we're freezing in the face of it. So how you deal with fear is very important um, because if you have a problem with fear in your life, fear is not the problem. It's your relationship with fear that's causing the problem. So notice now, do you wish it weren't so? Do you ignore this feeling? Do you avoid this feeling? Like, what is your relationship with that feeling? And I'll introduce a sentence right now. And this is kind of a big takeaway. So everybody should get out a pen. You ready? Mm -hmm. Suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So the discomfort is innate. You know, you're going to feel uncomfortable in your lifetime. uh, Probably every single moment of every single day. So that number, like, let's, I have a four. But then the resistance is equally a problem in terms of leading to your suffering. 
And in fact, many people that feel anxiety, like anxiety disorders even, it's actually the resistance that they're feeling. So um, the resistance actually is taught in our society. We are in such resistance to anything unpleasant. You know, there's signs everywhere, you know, warning, the, the sign has sharp edges, do not touch the sign. Like, that's the big joke. But we're so coddled, it's like we are a society of people that avoid anything unpleasant. And that that avoidance, that repression, uh, that um, resistance to the uncomfortable feeling that is fear is actually the problem, not the fear itself. So, notice your resistance, and that's part of our fear practice. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of cool. And then give it a number. For me, my resistance, because I'm, you know, I do this for a living, is a one. Right. You know, what's your resistance to that feeling on a scale of one to ten? Probably a four or five. All right. So, it's higher for you than the actual discomfort. Uh Uh-huh. So, then the resistance is the problem in your life, not the discomfort. So, then there's a long way of getting to where we're going, which is we're going to feel our emotions. And for you, I actually recommend you feeling, was your resistance higher than your discomfort? Did I get that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, then you want to feel your resistance. Mm. And I'm going to feel my discomfort. And let me just give you a, a practical application of this. I had to give a speech one time and it was in front of thousands of people and it was, you know, fear was there with me to help me prepare, make me not procrastinate, fear of failure, right? Got me off the couch. I credit fear of failure actually actually for me being prepared. But I got there. I'm about to give a 90-minute speech to thousands of people and about fear and anxiety and I am pickled in it. Now think about that for a second. <laughs> So what I did, 15 minutes beforehand, I went behind the building, found a quiet place, and I acknowledged that it's normal and natural for me to feel fear. It's part of life. Second step, what did I feel? Anxiety in my chest. It was a level 10. What was my relationship with it? Well, I was resisting it. Mm. It was also a level 10. I didn't want to feel it. So then the fourth step is you now feel your emotion. And so I started with the resistance, and I just closed my eyes and gave it my undivided attention. And I just repeated over and over again, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I just want to be home with my husband watching a movie. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be here for about a minute. And it's like that whining child again. You turn towards it and you give it your undivided attention. It calms right down. Uh-huh. And so after about, oh, a minute of this, it went down to a level one. And what's 10 times one? My suffering, Ah. yeah, went from a hundred to a ten, like you know, dramatically reduced my suffering in that moment. And then I turned towards the discomfort. And so let's do that right now. Okay. Like just feel your discomfort, and we'll do it for about a minute. Usually, I like to do this in silence, but just feel your discomfort. If you're driving, don't close your eyes, but it's better to do it with your eyes closed. And the key being, you do it without trying to get rid of it. The reason why you do it without trying to get rid of it, like I said, I love to personify fear, you know, like that whining child. If you turn towards the whining child and say, okay, sweetheart, what is it that you're trying to say to me? Um, I'm going to give you my undivided attention and then will you shut the hell up? Hmm. You know, fear is too smart for that. So just feel it. Give it love, attention, compassion, consideration. It's what anybody wants. It's all fear wants. 
And this is feeling your fear. You're not thinking about feeling your fear. And you're not looking at it like, oh, I can't stand it. I wish it weren't so, which is actually the problem, not the fear itself. You can have a relationship with it where you feel it. You can also have an intimate relationship with it. You know, play around with those two different alternatives. And just let me check in with you now. How do you feel? It's dissipated quite a bit. Like at first when we started, I was kind of like shaking a little bit. I could feel my heart racing, but it slowed down. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of a great Bruce Lee quote. The less effort, the faster and more powerful I will be. Uh. It takes a lot of effort to ignore your fear and block it out. And it'll ultimately render you weak. Um, the avoidance of fear is the cause of depression, PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety disorders, underperforming, um, and on and on and on. Like if you have a problem in your life, the repression of fear either has everything to do with it or something to do with it. Illness, like you repress fear, you've now created the ideal host environment for illness to thrive. Um, it's such a bad idea to repress fear. Wow. So to avoid is weakness, to own is powerful. So kind of this is the next part. Uh-huh. But going back to uh, the Bruce Lee quote, um, the less effort, the faster and more powerful I will be. It takes effort to re- repress fear and it renders you weak. It also takes effort to own and honor your fear or have a fear practice. Mm. But it takes a lot less effort and ultimately it will render you powerful because not only will these problems that I mentioned resolve, but all of a sudden you'll now be able to tap into the wisdom that fear has to offer you. I call it the fear hack. Um, I kind of alluded to it that fear takes you into the zone and little else does. I mean, we've really gotten off course with regard to fear. I'm just here to kind of correct us. Mm. Like it's not something to be conquered or overcome. It's something to be felt. It's not something to be understood. Something to become intimate with. And we're starting to see that more and more people are starting to have this intimate relationship with fear that I'm guiding you on. And, uh, that this whole repression of fear is going to be a thing of the past eventually. And you're either on this train or you're not. Wow. Wow. Um, so I want to finish with a couple of questions that came from, uh, my friend who I spent a lot of time skiing with and, uh, he had a list that was like a mile long. I was like, okay, I can't ask all of those, but, uh, one of the things that came was where else in your life do you experience the same kind of flow that you do from skiing? Um, Burning Man. Uh My husband and I build enormous art projects for Burning Man. And just being there, I mean, yeah, it's an ego trip to have like the sickest art car on the playa, (laughs) right? Um, But also it just... I just feel so good when I'm there and I feel so connected. Like for me, flow is just a state of connection Mm. to all that is. And um, my version of flow is this. I mentioned that the traditional number in Zen is 10,000 employees, 10,000 children, um, whatever your analogy is. Flow, we think of water. So I imagine myself like a hose and I have 10,000 droplets of water coming into through and out of my life on a regular basis. And here comes 
frustration. Here comes sadness. Here comes joy. Here comes fear. Here comes anger. Here comes happiness. Here comes love. It's like they're all coming into, through, and out of my life very quickly. And so when I'm at Burning Man, I just feel so alive and so free to not have to hide my emotions, to not have to hide any part of me, to not have to pretend that I am... um, something that I'm not, to wear the polite mask. I mean, how many of us have ever gone out in polite society and you're having a miserable day and somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. You know, you don't have to do that at Burning Man. Hmm. You could just be authentically yourself. Uh, I go heli skiing in Alaska every year. Uh, This year I'm going for four weeks with clients (laughs) and uh, I'm going to ski 55 degree slopes and I go up there just to see if I still got it. I assure you I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I go up there just because I want to scare myself. So anytime you do something that scares yourself, like be vulnerable in public, be authentically yourself in public, ski a 55-degree slope. For me, that's the quickest access to flow. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's a reason why extreme sports are notorious for taking you into that state. It's, <laughs> right. beca- it's because of the fear. Yeah. Because there's some part of us is embracing the fear. So anytime I do something scary, like bring big flamethrowers to Burning Man, that's all it takes. Yeah. Dance freely in public. There's that. Uh, wow. Tell the truth. So one, two more questions. Um, what do you do in the gym or outside of the mountain uh, for the sake of improving your skiing? <laughs> well, I go to Alaska every year without having skied. <laughs> right. So I go up and my husband was just saying to me the other day, he's like, you really need to go skiing. You're about to spend four weeks in Alaska. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I think I just need to go to the gym. <laughs> like, like, I could literally not ski for 30 years and you could drop me on the top of a Eufalia die descent and I'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, I will say, by the way, just because this is a really important point, I don't want to leave this behind. The question is, could I have been the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years if I hadn't repressed fear? And the answer is, well, first of all, if I hadn't repressed fear, if I had more of a, a fully intimate relationship with it, I wouldn't have had as many injuries. And I would have been a better skier for that reason alone. But I would have been 10 times the athlete. Wow. Like, we haven't even scratched the surface yet of what's possible athletically. Um, so I'll say that, but as for working out, you know, I, I have this ability to go up there having not skied, you know, even if it's been 30 years, I believe now because of my intimate relationship with fear, because I'll know exactly what to do if I get up there. It's like, I just merge with fear and it's like, it kind of reminds me of, um, the story of the young man and the old man that go to climb a mountain. Mm. And uh, the young man just charges uh, ferociously to the top, and he makes about halfway halfway through the day. He's just exhausted, and here comes the old man, and he's just slow and steady. And the young man is like aghast, like, "How is it possible you're going to beat me to the top of the mountain?" And the young man, or the old man, said, "Well, you come here to conquer the mountain." And the mountain, of course, is an analogy for your life, for fear. Um, but it is stronger than you. It's going to conquer you. I come here to merge with the mountain. And like lovers in a dance, it lifts me up. 
And so because I know how to do a dance with fear, be intimate with it, I feel like I'm going to make spot on intuitive decisions and I'm going to know my limits and I'm going to be safe. And I'm also going to um, go to the edge of my own boundaries. And so, um, but to answer your friend's question, I still do also go and lift weights just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Wow. Uh, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with that unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, we're, it's like I look at the universe as just this huge puzzle. Uh And uh, we're all individual puzzle pieces. And like the world would be incomplete without you. And, uh, but I also kind of look at myself uh, as my own separate individual puzzle piece as a separate puzzle that's also made up of 10,000 different realities. And it's my job in my lifetime to kind of have an honest relationship with all of them, my frustrations, my fears, my anxieties, um, my joys, my loves, my talents, my gifts. It's like, I, I see that in many ways, what you're asking, it's like, how can we just be authentically ourselves um, all the way? Well, can I be having a real honest relationship with not just the good part of who I am and, you know, the, the lovely side of life, but my shadow, the stuff that I normally wouldn't look at and the kind of the devastating, horrific side of life. And to me, that's a way that I can be just a full, complete puzzle piece within the puzzle that is the universe. And it's kind of my um, responsibility in my lifetime to go all the way with all of that so that I can make the best contribution that I can. So just short version of that is got to be just authentically who you are. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been truly amazing, thought-provoking, and insightful. Easily one of my favorite conversations I've had this year. Uh, oh, I can't thank, thank you, you for taking the time <laughs> to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? By the way, you ask great questions. Thank you. I ain't never done an interview like this before. <laughs> um, people can find out about me, kristenolmer.com. I have uh, um, a newsletter that you can sign up for. Uh, how you sign up for that is you can take the quiz that I have. I also have a bunch of ways to work with me. I have an online at-home course that addresses fear of failure. Another one that addresses is uh, chronic anxiety. And these will resolve your issues or you get your money back. I do webinars. I do live events. I do one-on-ones. And again, I... I will help you resolve your issue or you get your money back. And I only work with people for six hours because this kind of work, this fear practice does not take a lot of effort. And, you know, you think about that, like to the other side of your PTSD or your depression in six hours or you get your money back. Like that's kind of a big promise. Uh Um, But I, I do promise to make it worth it. And so far, nobody's asked for their money back. Wow. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.